Um, as they're leaving, I'm just going to uh, offer a quick word of prayer for Philip before he comes and preaches for us. Father, thank you for this next generation of children that are being um, taught to love and follow you who are giving, um, who are being taught your word and we pray that you'll bless their time together this morning as you will also bless ours. Lord, we pray for Philip as he comes and preaches now. We ask that you'll keep us um, attentive and attuned to what he's saying. We pray that your word may speak clearly to us um, and we pray for him too, that you'll uh, um, encourage him and um, help him to speak clearly from it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have we all got the outline? Anyone not? I'm sure if we raise our hands, we could pass them around this stage because it does make it a lot easier to follow. Over here, we need some. So just ushers, if you just walk around with a few so that the embarrassed will not feel embarrassed. It's lovely to be here. I did preach many years ago at, the, at church with you, but you weren't here, most of you. Um, and on that occasion that I did preach many years ago, it uh, was a very Scottish congregation and a very Scottish experience. And so far, it's been wonderful that I actually haven't met anybody who's Scottish here. Now, I'm sure there are some Scottish descendants here. But what I really like was I finally found the Scots. You've sent them to Turkey. <laughs> the Campbells, very Scottish name. So that's a really good thing to be doing. And you as a congregation, I can take it, will be really prayerful for them. I don't know them, but you'll be prayerful for them because many of you know what it's like to be migrants. And that's what missionaries are. Starting in a completely new country with a new language, a new way of doing everything. If anybody's going to understand them, it's migrants, isn't it? And so I do pray for that uh, family. Turkey is one of the toughest mission fields that we'll come across. It's a really, it's a, it's hostile to Christianity, has been for a long time. Remember, it was the, the it was the centre of the last caliphate, the one that the ISIS is trying to set up today. The last caliphate was in Turkey with the Ottoman Empire uh, that came to an end in 1922. So you are dealing with the very heartland of Islamic uh, uh, monopoly and empire when you go to a country like Turkey and so they in particular need our prayerful support as they're going on this task and with them in the sense of a background I didn't know we we're going to introduce them now so but I just think this passage that we're looking at uh, that we're going to be dealing with is so appropriate because it's all about being about shame and the gospel and pressure upon them to be ashamed of the gospel will be massive in a country like Turkey. And so as we think about ourselves in the light of this scripture, we might like to think about this, not the least because we're going to get reference to Asia in this passage. Now, those of you who come from Asia, this is not what they were talking about when they talked about Asia. This is the Roman province of Asia, which is uh, Asia Minor, which is Turkey. So actually when the word Asia occurs in the text, it really means Turkey uh, pretty well as the, uh, as the Roman province of Asia was then called. Um, we, of course, have been terribly affected by the Scots and even worse, the English, uh, who therefore teach us to call a part just near there the Middle East, which if you think about it is ridiculous because it's west from here, isn't it? It's west from pretty well everywhere, really. And when you ponder it, it's Southwest Asia. But because they're English who made up all the language, you see, for them, it's east. 
and it's the Middle East as opposed to the Far East. It's like the word antipodes. Do you know what the word antipodes refers to? The English all think it refers to us here. And for them, it's right. But the word antipodes just means the other side of the world. So they're the antipodes. I keep reminding all English people I meet that they live in the antipodes. Whereas we are antipodean to them, they are the antipodes as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so what we're going to talk about, uh, hello, for those of you who joined us this morning, Philip's my name, and because I've changed jumpers, I've forgotten my name tag. <laughs> and I'm not going to go walking in the rain just to find my name tag. You call me Philip. Philip's my first name. It's my Christian name, given to me in my baptism, and so I'm very glad to have it as a good name. Uh, and so please call me Philip. Uh, those of you who feel the need to call me sir, you're just making me feel old. <laughs> That's all you're doing. Please call me Philip. It'd be really nice of you to do that. Now, shame is a powerful motivator, a motivator to bring people to account, to embarrass people into action, but also to tyrannise people into compliance and stop people acting properly. It's a dreadful feeling, shame, to be humiliated publicly and to be exposed, to be exposed as a hypocrite or a humbug, to be laughed at, to be ridiculed, to be down, to be made feel stupid. In fact, Shame is one of the social control mechanisms that are being used today in the net, in, in comments that people will make on Facebook that make people feel ashamed, feel embarrassed, feel put down. Shame is often used by the powerful, by those in authority, like the media. They like to make politicians feel ashamed of their behaviour. The peer group does it. The high school peer group can be terrible in the way in which they make some member feel ashamed. The mob does it to silence the prophet who would wish to tell the truth. Shame was part of Jesus' challenge, though. He's challenged to would-be disciples in Mark 8 for having told them that if they want to be his disciples, they had to deny themselves, take up the cross, follow him, he then goes on to say, and he concludes his appeal with this terrible warning. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See, we live in a world of sinfulness. To stand up for righteousness in a world of sinfulness well, the world of sinfulness will try and make us feel ashamed. They'll say all kinds of nasty things about our kind of narrow-minded, bigoted, extremist attitudes. But remember, when the day of judgment comes, those who are ashamed of Jesus in this world, of him will they be, he be ashamed. It's so easy to be ashamed of Jesus and ashamed of his words in the world in which we live. The opponents of Christianity are so quick to be able to make you feel stupid or old-fashioned or an extremist, fundamentalist or a narrow-minded, bigoted or unintelligent, uninformed or a moralistic Bible basher or a God-botherer or a wowser, and I've run out of words. It just goes on and on and on. You've got the drift. The list of negative words about Christians can continue for the rest of the morning. And evangelicals are tempted to try and show that we're not uneducated by being better educated, more qualified than ever. But it makes no difference. 
we're tempted to show that we're not cultural philistines by exhibiting our sophistication and our culture but it makes no difference we're tempted to show that we're more athletic by making sure that we achieve great things on the sporting field but it makes no difference see the word puritan remains a term of abuse just like the word philistine it's actually an indication when people use the word Puritan and Philistine as a put-down that they themselves are uncultured and uneducated because both the Philistines and the Puritans were amongst the most sophisticated and technologically advanced people of their times. To call someone a Philistine in the ancient world was to call them one of the most advanced of people, one of the most cultured, civilised people. To see the Philistines as somehow barbaric it means you're just an ignoramus. You don't know anything about ancient history. See, Geoffrey Robertson is the atheist lawyer who wrote a very interesting book on the Puritans involved in executing King Charles I. It's called The Tyrannicide Brief. It's a, a lawyer's uh, book, in a sense, uh, a lawyer's book about there was a lawyer who was involved in trying King Charles I and succeeded in the trial, and they executed King Charles. Geoffrey Robertson argues that these men, these Puritans who did it, were first delivered on many of the ideals the world today most cherishes. The sovereignty of Parliament, the independence of judges, freedom from arbitrary arrest and detention, the right to silence, relative religious toleration, in short, freedom from tyranny. The people who created the very kind of culture that we take for granted now in Australia, the kind of culture of freedoms of rights for people, it was the Puritans who invented it all. That's what came, And it came out of this great trial of the king who wanted absolute sovereignty. Yet people will attack those who believe in the Bible as Puritans when Puritans are the people who have given us our legal system with all its rights and protections. As if by calling us Puritans, they're calling us first cousin to the Taliban. <laughs> they just do not know their history when they use that word as a term of abuse. Jesus warns that we will be tempted to be ashamed of him and challenges all who would be his disciples We've got to deny ourselves. So don't worry. We've got no, there's nothing to be ashamed of once you've given up yourself. Once you've said no to self, self-importance, self-significance, self-worth, I have no consequence. It's very hard to make a man ashamed when he has already denied himself. Take up the cross. Join Jesus in the ignominy of persecution and execution as we follow him. So... We will never be ashamed of him. And it was Paul's great protestation in Romans 1 that he, remember, was not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. <coughs> he writes this because, you see, the philosophers of Athens accused him of being a babbler. Uh, a bowerbird of ideas 
who really knows nothing, someone who just goes around and picks an idea from here, an idea from there, an idea, but they're actually uneducated. They don't actually think for themselves. They're just quoting what seems fashionable ideas at the time. But Paul was not like that at all. Agrippa was to question him and was to question whether he was mad or not for the things he believed. But Paul was not mad. He was frequently expelled from synagogues. He was cast into prison. Often he was in prison. He was whipped frequently, held up to public disgrace. The Jews thought him weak. The Greeks thought him foolish. But he was not ashamed. He was not ashamed of the gospel he preached. He was not ashamed of the Lord he proclaimed. He was not ashamed of the message of the cross. As he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. See, God is no man's debtor. He owes nobody anything. He's not going to uh, satisfy the requirements of human in, uh, superstition or human philosophy or human questioning. It's not the great in their greatness who will be in his kingdom, but the weak and the frail and the poor and the sinner, the simple and the lowly. You and I, we've got a chance, you see. It's for anybody and everybody who's a nobody. That's a wonderful thing when you ponder it. People saved by God's power and wisdom, whose salvation will show forth God's power and God's wisdom, because they're not saved by their own power or their own wisdom, they're saved by God's power and God's wisdom, by his grace, by his mercy. He doesn't save us as a magnificent brigade of well-turned-out soldiers, but in the shameful and despised execution of his son by crucifixion. Do you remember Naaman? Go back to your Bible stories, Naaman. He was a proud Syrian general who contracted leprosy. And he came to Elisha, the prophet of Israel, to be cleansed. Do you remember how angry he was when he was told by Elisha? Elisha didn't even tell him. He just sent a messenger to talk to him, which was a terrible, rude put-down for a general, a mighty general of the Syrian army. Just send his servant out. And his servant told him to go and wash in the river Jordan. Naaman said, Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. See, God chose what was foolish and weak to shame the wise and the strong. It wasn't until he went back and washed in the river Jordan that his leprosy was cleansed. God's way of salvation was the shameful cross. And Jesus' invitation is to take up that cross, not be ashamed of it. Not to be ashamed of Jesus. Not to be ashamed of Jesus' words. And Paul declared, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the very power of God and the wisdom of God for salvation. So in our passage today, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Three times we read about 
being ashamed. Look with me at verse 8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then down to verse 12. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's verse 12. It's not verse 12, is it? My notes are wrong. Can someone read verse 12 for us, please? Thank you, John. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Thank you. And then verse 16, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Firstly, then, is the command of verse 8. Do not be ashamed. Ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. See, the fundamental thing we must not be ashamed about is to testify to the Lord. Australian Christians need to develop some Jesus pride. We've seen groups express their message with pride, wearing with pride, the sweatshirts that declare their sinfulness often. What the world despises and sees is the shamefulness of Jesus. They quieten us. They silence us. Some will wear a jeweler's cross, but it's a piece of jewellery worn as a badge or a necklace. It doesn't communicate the shamefulness of being crucified. It's become a culturally acceptable fashion accessory. But that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> that is not the nature of it. For the cross was a human matter of shame, as I shared last night. And, of course, the cross was the place where the wrath of God was visited upon the Son of God. You can't capture that by a, a jewel-encrusted piece of gold hanging around your neck. Standing up for the name of Jesus when every, anybody or raises objection or opposition is a pride that we've lost and is the least we can do. We mustn't shrink back in embarrassed silence, changing the subject, moving on to happier topics where we can agree with people. Australians are terrible conformists. We want everybody to be happy and agreeing with everybody and we want to be like everybody else as much as we possibly can be instead of standing up for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, one of my children at university was in a tutorial group with a man who had a very famous Christian mother. She had stood up on the subject of uh, the ordination of women and uh, had actually said that that was against the Bible and she was against it. Well, of course, the newspapers the, uh, the newspapers and the ABC uh, basically crucified her, called her an idiot, an extremist, a weirdo and all the rest of it. And in this tutorial group, her name came up and everybody got stuck into it. Her son was sitting in the group, good friend of my daughter. Her son looked across at my daughter and with a cheeky grin, winked and waited for them to all speak up and all say dreadful things about this terrible woman. 
until towards the end of the tutorial he said, oh, by the way, I don't know if you notice I've got the same name as that woman because that woman is my mother. Suddenly the tutor and everybody else were backpedalling furiously to try and overcome the horror of what they had just said. They suddenly realised what was taking place and my daughter nearly died from internal, internally hemorrhaging through laughter. Standing up for the name is what we need to do. We hear the name of Jesus being bandied around negatively. We need to say, you know that's my God, don't you? Not a very hard thing to say. It's only a little thing, isn't it? But suddenly it changes the nature of our relationships with these people and the nature of their stupidity in so speaking of somebody who is so dearly loved by us because he so dearly loved us. Give you a simple illustration. What are you going to do on Monday? When you go to work, when you go to school, when you go to university. Yeah, an Australian tradition, which I presume you'll come across, is the people who say, do you have a good weekend? It's all one word. Do you have a good weekend? <laughs> what do you say? Oh, yeah, it was great. You know, I saw some friends. I went to a footy match. Uh, our team won. Did your team win last night? Yeah, they did. That's all right. That's, uh, some... Did your team lose last night? No, there's no sad faces here. Okay, all right. Um, so, you know, we say this kind of thing, you know, and uh, I got into some serious gardening or, gee, it was wet. All of which could be true, but it's what you're not saying that shows that you are ashamed, isn't it? Why don't you plan to say this? Oh, yeah, I went to a camp. Had a great time. There were so many people there these days in our church. Say, don't go into a camp. I went to a church camp. That's even better, isn't it? So many people these days. And there's so many, they're families, young people, old people. It's lovely to be together with all kinds of people. And all mixed in together. We come from every tribe and nation, it seems. It's really interesting. And the camp was all about how I'm not to be ashamed to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> now you're not ashamed, are you? Now you've actually pinned your colours to the mast. Now you've testified to Jesus. Now they are on the back foot defending, aren't they? Now they've got to speak to you about, well, that's interesting. I just sat at home and watched television, you know. I'm the boring person now. And it's easy enough to say, I must tell you when the next one's coming, you can come and join us because there are lots of people not out in our church who can come to our camps. We're open to everybody. But you've got a plan to do that, haven't you? You see what a knee-jerk reaction that is so different to our normal one. Our normal one is to say to a Christian, oh, I went to a great church camp, heard this wonderful, handsome, magnificent, intelligent <laughs> song leader and, <laughs> oh, that was naughty, wasn't it? And see, there's our, to the Christian we say that, to the non-Christian we say, oh, I saw the footy match late, late. Yeah, I saw the, which really... We're not testifying to the Lord. It's worse than that, though. We're ashamed to testify to the Lord. Plan for it this week. And in verse 8, it's not only do not be ashamed to testify about the Lord, but also do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Do not be ashamed of Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, it's not nice to have your friends in jail. Prison's not a nice address, especially when your friend is your mentor and your pastor and your teacher. And so it's easy to disown him. Oh, I believe what he says, but I wouldn't say it the way he says it. He does stick his neck out a long way. He, he brings this kind of problem on himself. I wish he'd just be more culturally sensitive and more circumspect in the way in which he speaks. Friends, you don't win the world for your cause by being circumspect in the way in which you speak. Leaders have to take bold and risky stands, make, they make their position clear and well-known, challenge people to go where people do not want to go. Even today, people hate the Apostle Paul. They'll say things like, well, I don't mind Jesus. He taught people some homely truths about loving their neighbour more than themselves. But Paul, oh, he made it all complicated and distorted. He was that narrow-minded legalist who brought in all the rules and regulations and destroyed Jesus' teaching. And the more they talk like that, the more you'll come to realise they've never read the Apostle Paul and, in fact, they don't know very much about the Lord Jesus either. Friends, we need to testify about Jesus and stick up for the man who gave testimony to Jesus, namely the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of the Nations. But for Timothy, it was more than stick up for the Apostle. Don't be ashamed, but instead, here's the alternative, suffer. See it there in verse 8? So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, the Holy Spirit giving us that power, the Holy Spirit of power. Here was the invitation to come and share in the imprisonment for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is not about having a comfortable, secure, prosperous, happy life. If you became a Christian for that reason, can I encourage you to reconsider? Because that is not the invitation that should have been given to you. It's God's way to live, and we often enjoy material advantages of life. Overall, Christians have better health, more wealth, more stable government, and happier relationships than other people. But all those are byproducts of Christian living. They're not the essence of Christian living nor the aim of Christian living, nor the purpose of living as a Christian. Nor can they be promised as sure outcomes to every individual Christian. It's not like that, friends. We aim in this lifetime, in this world, to bring glory to God, glory to the man whom they crucified. For now, life is to take up the cross and follow him. And this means we're not to be ashamed of him nor of his servants, but rather we're to join with them in the suffering. That's the invitation that we have, suffering for the gospel. And this is done by the power of God. For Paul could say of himself in verse 12, I'm not ashamed. Look back to verse 11 to put it in its context. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm not, I am suffering as I am, yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. As a child, I was taught a scripture union chorus to sing to that song. I looked to my elder brothers and sisters to see if they nodded and remembered that. We could sing as a little trio or quartet. You remember that song too? Hands up those who remember the song for I'm not ashamed. Yeah, you can tell them they're the ones who need someone beside them to help them get the arm up. You know, it's... <laughs> 
It's a great song, isn't it? But uh, we were... No, it's all right, I won't sing it for you. Paul's claim of not being ashamed in the face of suffering. Do not be in doubt. He was suffering. He was in jail and later in the letter you'd find he was cold and lonely and facing death. He was suffering the criticism of others, in particular some of his friends, and in fact he was suffering the desertion of all his friends. I mean, it's, it's really bad when you're cold and you're miserable and you're hungry, but when your friends desert you as well, that's as painful as it gets, isn't it? The desertion of friends. These were hard times before. He'd spent all these years proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, seeing people saved, had his wind up at the end of his lifetime, not in a comfortable retirement village with a good superannuation payout, but in a Roman prison facing death, cold, lonely and deserted. That's where the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ finished his life. They were hard times. He'd often been beaten and imprisoned. He'd often been shipwrecked, lonely and hungry. But now he felt as if the end was coming. He was being poured out like a drink offering, he says. And the time of his departure had come. And all this suffering was because... He was the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't suffering for things of which he should be ashamed of. He wasn't suffering in prison because of theft or murder or something like that. He had no reason to be in prison of a just jury. He had no reason to be ashamed of anything he'd done. He was in prison for being a preacher, an apostle and a teacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just pick up our reading back there at verse 9 where he's talking about God. God who saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purposes and grace. So this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel... I was appointed a herald, an apostle and a teacher and that is why I am suffering as I am. And yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. See, this is the reason for his suffering. The reason all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. We suffer for testifying to Christ's saving work. It's not because of our good works, but because of God's good purpose and mercy. That with the coming of the, our Saviour, death has been abolished. Death has been abolished and eternal life has been established. Here's the gospel that the world hates. It's perverse that the world hates it. And yet, that's the nature of sin, to be perverse. In Jesus, and only in Jesus... Is there eternal life? Is death overcome? Is the penalty paid? And is new life started with the resurrection of our Lord and Saviour? It's not for us to update this message and make it more acceptable to the 21st century. We're not to tailor it to, to make it more acceptable to our hearers. Rather, notice what Timothy is to do in verses 13 and 14. What you heard from me, 
keep as the pattern of sound teaching, sound words, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. It's not just the testimony, but it's the very pattern of sound words. He is to guard the good deposit entrusted to him. Many years ago, I wrote a little evangelistic uh, catechism to teach people the gospel. Uh, It's called Two Ways to Live. I don't know whether you've used it or not or seen it around anyway, but that, uh, yes, in my youth, that was in 1978 when I was about three years old, um, (laughs) we wrote that that, uh, little thing. The aim of it is to teach a pattern of sound words. So actually, our forefathers have done the same. Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The idea that you actually learn what is the chief end of man. That you can say the answer to it so that you have a pattern of sound words that will express the gospel so that you're actually able to hang your ideas on the great truths of the gospel. So, Paul, not only did you kind of guard the gospel in general, actually specifically, the very words of the gospel, the very pattern that you are to hold true to. But that is why Paul is not ashamed in verse 12. I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. His confidence is fully in God. The outcome and future is all in God's hands. We keep on trying to take it back out of God's hands and make it all our own work, but it's not. The future is all in God's hands. What we must do is just do the right thing in our own time in the opportunities available to us and trust him for the results and the future. But Paul knew that he would not be put to shame for he's persuaded, he's convinced, he's assured that God is able. That is those three lovely words, friends. He is able. Our God is not weak. Our God is not beaten. Our God is not defeated. Our God is able. In the face of the sufferings of Christ, in the midst of the sufferings of the Christ, let this be your testimony. He is able to guard until the day what I've entrusted to him. And I may say, Also, what has been entrusted to me. For I'm sure that the sufferings of this present age are not to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, because I know he is able, I am not ashamed. I am on the winning side. I don't know who's going to win the AFL this year. I don't know if your team is going to win or not. I don't know whether your team is able. (laughs) But I know God is able. And therefore, I know I'm on the winning team. As an illustration of this, consider Anisiphorus. He was not ashamed. Everyone in Asia, Turkey, has turned away from me, wrote Paul in verse 15. This is such a, it's such a sad statement, isn't it? Paul had laboured so long and hard for the Asians. 
He'd spent three years in Turkey. The church in Colossae had been planted by his ministries there. He had spent, he'd laboured so long for the Asians. He'd suffered for them so much. And now we read in verse 15, you know, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. It must have been a bitter blow. Betrayal, infidelity, disloyalty are such painful, painful failures. Loneliness is made worse by desertion of your supposed friends. But there was still a bright spot. Onesiphorus, for we read that in verse 16, he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Onesiphorus is a great example of the Christian servant. We don't know what he did in the service of Paul, only that he rendered it repeatedly in Ephesus and in Rome, and that he worked hard to find Paul, and most importantly, he was not ashamed of the apostle in chains, but clearly, unambiguously identified himself with the apostle. What an, encu- what an encouragement he was to Paul. What an example he was to Timothy. This was the way, Timothy. Join with me in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What an example, friends, to us. Some years ago, I got into terrible trouble with the media. Many times I got into terrible trouble with the media. And the Manchester Guardian and London Times and others were speaking very ill of me. And a man who's uh, at the church, the minister of a very big London church, was asked. And he said, I don't know anything about it. He didn't know anything about it. He wasn't there as to what. But he said, I stand with Philip Jensen. I don't know what he's done, but I agree with him. (laughs) It was a terrific relief. It was a great encouragement. It was a marvellous thing that a man would stand up for me and have confidence in me, even when he didn't know what was being said. He knew who his enemies were. He knew who his friend was. And so he stood with his friend. Let there be no shame amongst us. We must have no shame about the messenger of the gospel. The Apostle Paul was the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reject Paul and you are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is our apostle because he's the apostle to the nations. I don't mind this at all. Let there be no shame. Hands up any of us who are Jewish or come from a Jewish background. Okay, guys, he's our apostle. (laughs) All the other 12, they're the apostles to the nation of Israel. There was one apostle for the rest of us. His name's Paul. You reject Paul, you've got to be Jewish to be Christian. It was Paul who was the one who persuaded the world of the truth of the gospel for all nations because he was the apostle to the nations, the apostle to the Gentiles and Judging by the fact no hand went up then, I say that for the sake of people who couldn't make it to the conference camp and therefore are listening on tape, uh, judging, uh, listening by downloading, judging by that, then this is a group of Gentiles. We have one apostle, his name's Paul. You ditch him, you've ditched your own Christian faith. Never be ashamed of this one. I have a book at home called The Modern Degenerates long list of all the degenerates and the dreadful things they did to destroy Western culture. The man whom they say gave rise to all of this degeneracy was a man called 
Martin Luther. It's written by a Roman Catholic, that book. <laughs> I want to throw the book away. Martin Luther's, Martin Luther's one of the greatest ones we've ever had. He stood for the cause of the gospel like nobody else did. He risked his life so that we might be able to have the truth of the gospel preserved for us. Next year, 500 years since he nailed his thesis to the door. I hope there's going to be a big celebration here in Melbourne somewhere. If not, let this church organise it. He was a great one. What time do you ever hear anybody speak well of John Calvin or closer to home? Ever speak a good word about Samuel Marsden, the flogging parson, who actually was the apostle to New Zealand, the first man ever to preach the gospel to New Zealand and to the Maoris and saw many Maoris come to Christ and as he started his ministry there on Christmas Day, 262 years ago, the gospel first preached. But no historians only ever speak ill of him and well of those who were the degenerates of the early part of Australian history. But it's not only the past. In the present, whenever people stand up for Jesus, they can expect to be criticised. And it will not be for the message, but for some other aspect of them that will be mentioned. We, we had a, a police commissioner in New South Wales. He's a fine Christian man. Goes to a Baptist church, a man of real integrity. When he got appointed, narrow-minded teetotaler. How can a man who doesn't drink possibly be the police commissioner in New South Wales? After five years, they gave him an extension because he's one of the few police commissioners we've ever had who's not corrupt. He's one of the few ones everybody has come to trust. But when he was appointed, his name was Mud because he was a Christian. Our Premier in New South Wales is also a Christian man. That's an astonishing thing you might say. Again, as soon as he became Premier, how can a man who's a Bible-believing, Bible-thumping Christian possibly be the Premier for all of New South Wales? The answer is it's because he's a Christian that he does care for all of New South Wales. The exact reverse. But yet? Attack just because he's a Christian. You might like to remove to pay for those men. Paul says, I'm not against what he... Sorry. It's not only, you see, in the past. It happens over and over again that people will not accept those who are Christians. See, one lady I knew from one of the most famous families in Sydney, old money socialite. She became a Christian at the 1959 Billy Graham crusade. When she went around telling all the old wealthy families of Sydney about the fact they need to become Christian, my dear friend Mary got known universally as Mad Mary. She, whenever you mentioned her, everyone would say, oh, Mad Mary, I know Mad Mary. That was just, it was just her full name, Mad Mary. It's very sad. She left our church to go to one of the richest churches in Sydney because she said there's not enough rich people here and it's the rich who need the gospel and it's very hard for the rich to become Christians. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and I'm the only person who's able to go and talk to them so I'm going to go and talk to them. Was she accepted? No. She was known as Mad Mary. <laughs> oh, nothing mad about the woman at all. She was just Christian. A wonderful conversion. And it's not only, you notice the verse that says, not many of you are rich. It doesn't say not any. She was saved by the little M. Not many of you are rich. 
And it's not only other people. In the present, whenever you stand up for Jesus, you can expect to be criticised and ostracised, cold-shouldered, left out and laughed at. I'm asking you to do it, but I'm asking you to count the cost in the doing of it so that you know that it's going to happen, so that you're not let down and fail. You don't suddenly go, well, this was an awful silly idea. Look what's happened to me. You know before it happens that it's going to happen to you. But that's all the reason to do it because you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, friends, of course, is nothing compared to our brothers and sisters in Nigeria or in the Sudan all those years of that dreadful war and the problems that are still, or Saudi Arabia or Turkey, where 99% or China or Cuba or many nations in the world or Southwest Asia, where the letter N is planted on your doors in Iraq to say you are a follower of the Nazarene and therefore your possessions are available to be plundered by anybody who cares to take them. For your life is of no value because you follow the Nazarene. What we suffer here is nothing. We must not be ashamed of the message. For by our good works we'll never be saved, but only face certain death and judgment of God. But by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his resurrection, life and immortality has been brought to light. And we are saved and rescued. We are forgiven of all our sins. And this new life, this eternal life can be ours. And what is available to us is available to all people. And so we must proclaim it to all. We're to call upon all people to repent and to turn back to God and to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Have you done that? Is he your Lord and Saviour? I don't know you, and so I can say it publicly to all of you, can't I? Is yours Saviour the Lord Jesus? If he's not, turn back and put your trust in him because he is the only saviour of all the earth. Uh, talk to Chris, talk to John about it, talk to one of the others here and say, what do I need to do to put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus? But if you have, and I take it most of us here have, if you have, then never be ashamed of the gospel message for it's the power of God and the wisdom of God for the salvation of all people. So never be ashamed of testifying. It's not just don't be ashamed when people attack you. Go on the front foot and tell people. Never be ashamed of testifying about our Lord Jesus or of those who'd so testify like the Apostle Paul did in his day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus, for his death for us and for his resurrection. We thank you that he now sits in all power and authority. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, you are able. Indeed you are. That whatever we've entrusted to you, you are able to save us to that last day. And you are able to preserve your gospel message to the ends of the earth. You are indeed the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And we pray that you would give us 
First of all, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus that each of us might know you as our Father and Jesus as our Lord and that you would give us such boldness in the Holy Spirit that by the power of the Spirit we may be bold to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ that we might never be ashamed of him or the gospel or those who preach the gospel but rather we may join in suffering for the cause of the gospel, for the glory of your name and your son's name and for the salvation of other people. And we pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.